This is episode 36 of the weekly eye-catching words podcast, published on the 8th of August 2023. Hello and welcome to the Iron Catching Words podcast episode 36 which means we've only got 16 weeks to go until the first anniversary of this podcast. Now in that time I hope to do a few bumper editions and cover a few different topics and this week I'm going to be doing a podcast with two dicks, myself and my eldest son who will be talking or we will be in conversation about some of the big issues in society today and I hope this will be a feature of this podcast going forward. He has already said he wants to interview me and I have a feeling he has some very interesting questions up his sleeve. One of the things that characterised the last week was the publication of the Booker Long List for this year's Booker Prize. I've been allocated two books to read. One is a group book, which is How to Build a Boat. My book is Study for Obedience. I've made a start on both, but not made much headway on either. As I said last week, reading is a skill and I'm a little bit out of practice, but I shall soon become the Iron Man of the Booker reading world. One of the things that dominated the last week for me was war, uh, in particular the Second World War, as I've become a binge watcher, which is unusual for me, a binge watcher of a programme called World on Fire, which had its first series pre-Covid and had a long hiatus with the second series coming out fairly recently on the BBC. It is a bit of a soap opera set against the background of the Second World War. You've got men in love with two women, you've got cowardice, you've got duplicitousness, you have heroism in the face of the Third Reich, you have the drama of explosions, you have men fighting with each other, you have everything that you would find in EastEnders. It is a genuinely gritty drama and you do see and you do get a sense of how war changes people both when they're in the fight or uh, on the home front. And it resonated with me because my parents both lived through the Second World War. My father in uh, fighting in North Africa and my mother enduring the Blitz in London. Listen to this brief extract where the central character of Harry, who is fighting in Egypt and Libya, uh, is in banter with his sergeant, who he has fought with in uh, France and on the way to Dunkirk. Took your time. Last man out of Dunkirk, was ya? It's good to see you, Sergeant. Lads, Lieutenant Chase has decided to join us. All right, sir. War will be over in six weeks. It's good to see you, Joe. You too, sir. This is George, sir. George. Sorry. Welcome to hell, sir. Well, if the sand doesn't get in your ass cracked, then the flies will get in your wedding tackle. So we lost our last officer. Septic foreskin. Nasty. 
Not seen much action yet, but maybe the Italians were just waiting for you to arrive, sir. That's Rajib, in charge of the sappers. Same rank as you, but more convincing. A bit full of himself, but I'd be full of myself if I single-handedly blew a hole in a mountain so the Scots guards could get through and chase the enemy. Every afternoon, the Italians fly over, just to show us they know where we are. They never attack, sir. But I think you kept your dignity, that's the main thing. Fuck off, Sergeant. How's that Polish wife of yours? You ever see her again, or did you go home and make it up the one you got up the duff? My wife, Kasia, is safe. She's in England, living with my mother. But you said she was safe. This led me to revisiting an old poem that I first read back in 1975-76 by a poet that's not well known called Vernon Scannell, but he was a, a very, very good poet and a remarkable figure who was quite prominent uh, in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s and then became overshadowed, uh, particularly by the likes of the new generation of poets such as Tom Gunn and Ted Hughes. But Vernon Scannell wrote a poem called Walking Wounded about his experience of fighting in the Second World War. And the thing about it is he manages to speak and write both dispassionately and compassionately. And I think that's quite a unique trick that you can feel the emotion and yet you can also feel that the observer is standing back and aware of what's going on. Werner Scannell uh, recorded a number of his own poems, so here is Walking Wounded. It's three and a half minutes long, so you might want to pause and think about it before you press the play button again. The reason I say this is poetry has fallen out of vogue somewhat, and listening to Vernon Scannell talk and rereading the poem in the book, which I've still got from uh, nearly 50 years ago, it made me realise how powerful poetry is and how powerful it can be in a crazy, crazy world. It can enable us to stop. It can enable us to get off the treadmill of life. And we need more poetry. We need more people speaking poetry. So here is Vernon Scannell reading Walking Wounded. A mammoth morning moved grey flanks and groaned. In the rusty hedges, pale rags of mist hung. The gruel of mud and leaves in the mauled lane smelt sweet like blood. Birds had died or flown, their green and silent attics sprouting now with branches of leafed steel, hiding round eyes and ripe grenades ready to drop and burst. In the ditch at the crossroads, the fallen rider lay hugging his dead machine and did not stir at crunch of mortar, tantrum of a bren answering a spandar's manic jabber. Then into sight the ambulances came, stumbling and churning past the broken farm, the amputated signpost and smashed trees. Slow wagon loads of bandaged cries, square trucks that rolled on ominous wheels, vehicles made mythopoeic by their mortal freight and crimson crosses on the dirty white. This grave procession passed, though for a while 
the grinding of their engines could be heard, a dark noise on the pallor of the morning, dark as dried blood, and then it faded, died. The road was empty, but it seemed to wait like a stage which knows the cast is in the wings, wait for a different traffic to appear. The mist still hung in snags from dripping thorns. Absent-minded guns still sighed and thumped. And then they came, the walking wounded, straggling the road like convicts loosely chained, dragging at ankles exhaustion and despair. Their heads were weighted down by last night's lead, and eyes still drank the dark. They trailed the night along the morning road. Some limped on sticks, others wore rough dressings, splints and slings. A few had turbaned heads, the dirty cloth brown badged with blood. A humble brotherhood. Not one was suffering from a lethal hurt. They were not magnified by noble wounds. There was no splendour in that company. And yet, remembering after eighteen years, in the heart's throat a sour sadness stirs. Imagination pauses and returns to see them walking still, but multiplied in thousands now. And when heroic corpses turn slowly in their decorated sleep, and every ambulance has disappeared, the walking wounded still trudge down that lane, and when recalled, they must bear arms again. I first came across that poem in an anthology called Let the Poet Choose, in which poets chose two of their poems and introduced them, and it has all the famous poems of the era in the 1970s, such as Tom Gunn, Seamus Heaney, uh, Ted Hughes. In his introduction to Walking Wounded, Werner Scannell wrote the following. Slowly I came to see that Walking Wounded represented the common human condition. The dramatically heroic role is for the few. Most of us have to take the smaller wounds of living and we have to return again and again to the battlefield. And perhaps in the long run this is the more important, even the more heroic role. I quoted that in the late 1980s when I came to work in Surrey to set up a Citizens Advice Bureau in a psychiatric hospital because to me at that time that seemed to represent a great deal about people who were suffering with mental health problems, with disabilities that weren't visible or if they were visible were scorned by society. For me people with mental health issues were walking wounded. Moving on. Here is a conversation between my eldest son and I, where we talk about random issues and we particularly talk from his perspective as uh, a scholar and an intellectual, and my perspective as someone who is just old. What, what, what are the things you think are the big issues at the moment? Isn't it the thing that people ind individually have priorities, different priorities as to what the big issues are. Yeah. So the environment, an environmentalist will say that global warming is the big issue. Yeah. Or uh, a racist nationalist will say that immigration is a big issue. Yeah. Um, 
I was quite interested in the Uxbridge uh, by-election result for the simple reason that there you had a very interesting juxtaposition of uh, big economic, big political issues and everyone expecting Labour to take Uxbridge and then it got turned around because of a single issue which was the, the Mayor of London's uh, ULES. And there's an article about it in today's Guardian, actually, which I think may be going a little bit too far in its, an in its analysis, but says it's actually rooted in kind of Brexit-style policies where people are more concerned about self-interest than they are about the bigger picture. But it was it was very interesting, and of course it immediately sent all the political leaders scurrying away to reconsider their green credentials. Mm. And I noticed that today, for instance, Greenpeace protesters have broken into the grounds of Rishi Shunak's uh, manor house. Huh. And they have used climbing ropes to scale the building. And they've covered the entire building in black canvas. As people who go to the levels like that, it clearly shows the people who are doing that, they think that climate change and environment is such an urgent priority. Yeah. Well, the problem started years ago, climate yeah. emergency some years ago. And they expect politicians today to actually take Mean, meaningful action. Um, <clears throat> I think there's several obstacles. One that they say there's that the short-termism yeah. in politics. Politicians in Western liberal democracies are really, really, really bothered about the electoral cycle, the electoral yeah. outcome. So yeah. are they going to get re-elected? We don't have, as far as I know, a constitutional mechanism which says that we have a pressing issues 10, 20 years down the line. Yeah. We, we need a long-term plan to work, have focus and really, really devote as many resources to fixing the issue, otherwise yeah. future generations will rue the day. But also, very quickly, future generations is interesting because po these politicians and the business leaders and the various lobbyists who take the decisions which affect this thing, they have relatives, they have grandchildren, well, I think most of them would, and therefore on that basis you think that they would want a, a decent planet, a decent home, a safe a safe space to live, where the air isn't polluted, where the ocean isn't rising, where sea levels aren't rising to unsustainable levels, a habitable planet, unless we get to a situation where it's like um, Elysium, Matt Damon, where they, mm -hmm. the ultra-rich build a great big space station. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you see, actually, I think that's a really good point, because uh, although that film bombed a little, it, it made a very important point, which was that if the elite can hold on to uh, a lifestyle, mm they're not going to worry about the condition of the masses. No. Now, that, that took it to science fiction uh, extremes, and, it's, and, and you said the point, if, if people haven't seen the film, you have a space station where the, the elite live in absolute luxury, mm. and the planet Earth is really just being used as a resource. Earth is overpopulated, disease-ridden, yeah. yeah. um, pollu polluted to hell. Yeah. It's it's almost like a wasteland, and the rich have just abandoned the golf courses. The only yeah. aspiration you have if you're left on Earth is to try and reach absolutely reach that literal heights. Mm. So, in answer to your question about do politicians not consider the future because they either have or will have children or grandchildren of their own. So I don't already. think they the mentality of people in, the, for instance, in the Tory party particularly, they never think it's going to be an issue for them or their family. They just cannot see it. Hmm. It's an ultimate form of short-sightedness. The American Indians, the indigenous <coughs> population of America, there were some tribes who 
had a vision, even way back in the 17th century, that you would plan for several generations ahead. And they were great respecters of their environment. In fact, American Indians were, uh, Native Americans were absolutely shocked when they saw the degradation that European settlers brought with them. now the question for me is if they can understand at least the need to plan ahead, why why can't we? I mean, I, there was an environmentalist whose name I've forgotten. He said, he said that mankind has Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and, godlike and, technology. and modern godlike technology, mm. and you know, that's the problem. The primeval bit of us just brings a wrecking ball. Mm to everything we do mm. that doesn't explain to me why some societies some cultures and some individuals are capable of having that long view mm. uh, which is you know a wonderful thing but it, why why don't we all have it uh, i suppose every species has its its exceptions yeah i'd say two main reasons one they don't have to worry about elections every five years um maybe their chief maybe their chiefs are elected but if it's like a hereditary tribal leadership then there's that and also they don't they don't have this new religion of economic growth and uh ultra corp- corporate um money mentality which yeah. puts profits and financial strength over environment over environmental resources yeah. environmental resources yeah. that are purely to line the pockets of oil companies gas companies whoever, whoever it may be yeah no i mean i think that's a really interesting point i mean i'm thinking of ancient societies like the Incas. Um, mm. I mean, I think what the first thing is you're right. Democracy is not a natural feature of history, is it? No, it's, it's very young. It's a, it's a it young concept. Um, but uh, the normal way in which, well, I think it's complicated, isn't it? The way in which authority and, and, and knowledge are passed on is usually through uh, a patriarchal mm. tribal elder system. Mm. <laughs> so older men guide younger men the older mm. men become the leaders of, of the society mm. and all uh, mythology and the information is transmitted orally yeah unless that society is is literate it does make yeah. pen's paper but historically uh, that's rarely going to well you can be you can be yeah. sophisticated in your oral traditions in the way absolutely. you pass things on absolutely uh, it's more romantic as well <laughs> yeah you know you know what i mean you know it's um it's it's a step away from just Putting it, putting it to paper, great though that is, yeah. but you know, there is something romantic and traditional about passing yeah. on information, mythology, family yeah. history through yeah. through, through, or, through, uh, through oral means of sitting around a campfire. Yes, yeah. or, or, uh, or even some people who have a designated role mm. to remember things, mm. which brings its own dangers, of course. But anyway, that, that is a rabbit hole, which one which I would yeah. love to explore at some stage. But when we start writing things down, we start codifying things, of course that is a big step forward for any society, any community. Um, and you could argue that one of the ways we've, one of the ways democracy has developed has been out of the codification of things in writing. Democracy mm. probably wouldn't have happened in a, in a society where nothing was ever written down. You have to write down certain rules and regulations and democratic. Mm. Um, well, democracy as we understand it, there may be, no, uh, pre-literate societies might get well. In fact, 
if you read if you read Tacitus, the Roman historian, yeah. in the age of the the first emperor Augustus, yeah. he made some very interesting documentaries about the Germanic tribes living in the forests of northern Europe and what is today Germany. Yeah. And of course, they did they one of the reasons why we know very little about them is because they had no writing. Yeah. Um, all the information we have is secondhand from Roman and Greek authors. Right, um, who encountered them. Yeah. Yes, however, he says that they elected their chiefs. They right. got round, um, they had, uh, well, in Anglo-Saxons there were mead halls, but they had centres of political authority. It might be a hearth, it might be um, their own, the chief's hall, if, yeah. you, if you like, in the middle of the forest, and they would get out their weapons and uh, clang them to show that they're electing a leader. And here's the, be here's the best thing. They would sometimes do it while drunk to resolve their political arguments because apparently it made them more honest. Yeah, you're more likely elected. to get a consensus or, yeah. or an honest consensus if you're drunk. Well, think about that. If you're intoxicated, you're more likely to speak your mind. Per okay. se. And then whether or not you regret it the next morning is another question. Another matter, of course. But they elected their. So what you're really arguing is, when it comes to Westminster, we should actually increase the number of bars and alcoholic drinks available in Westminster because a bunch of pissed MPs, <laughs> they won't clang their swords, but they might uh, wave could, their alder cards or something. Could they do a worse job? I don't think so. <laughs> Yeah, quite right. I mean, a bunch of pissed MPs would probably do a better job than the current intake of MPs. We originally started this conversation talking about big ideas. About big ones. Well, yeah, but we, we were talking about the difficulties of making progress on the big issues in a world where people are so short sighted. Yeah. And that kind of. Uh, well, you know, I've read Ian Dunn's book about. Mm. Uh, how Westminster works and why, and why it doesn't. Mm. Now, great title, though. It is a brilliant title for mm. a book because um, it immediately throws up uh, the gap between the, the, the theory and the rules mm. and the actual way they operate in real life. Yeah. But it's not just the United Kingdom, is it? I mean, um, even places, Germany, which has a very successful democracy based on a constitution which was written uh, about nearly 80 years ago, mm. so he's quite young. Mm. But even Germany now is straining a little bit to reconcile the tensions in its citizenship between wanting things done now mm. and uh, the certain knowledge that a lot of the things we're doing now are killing the future. Mm. Um, it seems to me that it, over the last few years when we've seen uh, economic collapses, high inflation, problems across the board in society with everything from uh, housing to the emergence of political tensions. Mm. Politicians aren't prepared. They, they, they always assume you could keep growing your way out of trouble mm. and we're beginning to realise now you can't keep growing. You yourself no. said a little, a little earlier that the obsession with economic growth mm. is a way, it, fundamentally, a way of resolving short-term problems. If you can give people the, if you can give people what they want mm. in terms of the basics of life, but also um, the distractions that they crave, you know, mm. you, you're buying off the future. Personally, and rather bleakly, I think the future is inevitably dystopian because I can't see how we're going to reconcile this. Um, but you know, you may feel different. I do feel different <coughs> because humankind have had dystopian predictions yeah. since the dawn of time. 
there was a genuine sense that in the year 1000 the world was going to end. Yeah. Admittedly for religious reasons. Yeah. You're not religious and you're basing that assumption on what you've studied. You know, and when, when, you have, when, when you have someone like David Attenborough, who is, whatever you think of, he, he is an authority yeah. on things like that. When he says that the clock is ticking, we've got yeah. something, to, something to solve. Yeah. You know, that you should pause for thought and think, yeah, yeah there are people out there who have good credence to say that unless we change something now, the world is screwed. I am optimistic. For any reason, I don't see the point in being perpetually pessimistic, given that I'm in my early yeah. 30s. Like, I refuse to accept that the world, the whole world is going to the dogs. Otherwise, I may as well just cease to exist, yeah, yeah. for one. Um, history, I mentioned, the, yeah. these predictions are, are, are nothing new. In fact, uh, there's a book which I haven't got, I flipped through, and it's about the history of doom mongering. Yeah. I think of it, things that there's something deep down in the human brain and psychology which which, which relishes and loves predicting our own Well, that is, true. Yeah. that is true. Yeah, <laughs> because it's, it's down to evolution apart from anything else. Yeah. And if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have um, our own evolutionary defence mechanisms, yeah. whether that's to work hard, invest in our kids, etc., etc. But also, I think the pendulum is swinging in the right direction. Despite the, despite what you mentioned earlier about Sunak and Labour summits and reneging on their green policies, yeah. my generation and younger see the climate to take one as an issue which we need to deal with. So that gives me hope. Another is that they want to challenge the the broken economic model mm. of perpetual growth and consumption. Do you remember I mentioned a few days ago um, when uh, from J B Priestley's book when he's touring England and he meets. Um, a builder or a bricklayer or some kind of manual labourer yeah. in a pub and he's really really happy because he's val he's valued in the local community yeah. and he does he does a trade which gives him purpose and meaning and dignity he's a far cry from a lord who's presiding over thousands of acres etc yeah. he doesn't have a huge amount of material wealth but he has more than enough to get by to do what's have to feed his family and that is what's so lacking these days yeah if companies actually invested more in their staff and gave employees their workers dignity yeah. and made them feel valued as opposed to not treating them like a, a tiny cog in a much bigger wheel yeah. then it wouldn't it wouldn't be a panacea by any stretch no. debates over equal pay maternity leave etc but if you really give people a sense of purpose and meaning yeah. then that would be and, a good and first dignity. step yeah. mm. I think that's really interesting I think it's just one of the things that marks one of the things that marks an angles uh, and the, and the so French sociologist Durkheim said basically was modern industrial society as it was mm. then in the 19th century uh, creates um, an alienated workforce. Mm. They diagnose the right problems. Whether or not they come up with the right answers is another question. I, I think that's a very, very good observation to end on because mm. basically the correct analysis is not the same as having the correct solutions. No. So far from it. That's all from the Eye Catching Words podcast this week and its five-year mission to boldly go to places which will hopefully stimulate and cheer you up in these dark times. Um, we're going to play out this week with Al Bowley singing Goodnight Sweetheart, which is a brilliant classic from World War II, continuing the theme. Uh, have a great week and see you next time.
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please check out the website. You can find this at www.eyecatchingwords.blog. If you want to contribute an article, want to be interviewed, or just have an idea that you think we should explore, please send this into the email address that you can find on the site. You can also leave voice comments on Spotify. The Eye Catching Words podcast is published every Tuesday on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music.